So if you've ever seen and or used Twitter, you might know that when you click on someone's profile, uh, you can see a short bio of them that's limited to about 160 characters. What you probably don't know is God was doing that way before it was cool. Uh, see, back in the book of Exodus, in Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, God is hanging out with Moses on Mount Sinai, and he shares a short bio of himself with Moses. And this is what he said. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Now he goes over the Twitter character limit just a little bit, but this is really a succinct way of describing who God is. And it's actually the most retweeted passage in the Old Testament. It shows up again and again to describe God's character. And what we're going to do in this series, in the next five weeks, is look at how God's character shines through in the midst of hardship. We're going to be looking at, at a book of the Bible that, based on the noises you made when I announced it, you probably haven't heard much of or spent time in. It's the book of Lamentations. And, and, and it's a short book that is also probably the saddest book in the Bible. Uh, it's, it's a collection of five poems that were written after Jerusalem, the capital of Israel, fell to the nation of Babylon in 597 B.C. And so the situation was this. Their country is in ruin. Uh, the, the inhabitants of Jerusalem were either killed by the sword, starved to death, or carted away to slavery. And so there's a small remnant that was left, and one of those survivors pens these poems in an attempt to make sense of the hardship, to try to find God in the midst of it. And that's something that we need to do as well, because let's be honest, the last year has not been great. Um, that we have experienced more loss in the past year than most of us have experienced in our entire lifetime. And so we, we really need to be grappling with God and his character. Is God really who he says he is up in these Exodus 34 verses 6 and 7 paragraph? And so we're going to grapple with that by looking at the book of Lamentations and, and see how his self-described character remains true even in the midst of great sorrow and how that affects the way we go through hardships. And so let's turn our attention to Lamentations chapter 1. And Lamentations uh, reads a is a poem, and so it doesn't read like a story or Paul's letters. It, it doesn't build on itself. Uh, it, it's really, but it is trying to tell us a story. It's painting us a verbal picture of a of the city of Jerusalem after the fall, and it's personifying it as a grieving widow. And here's what we're going to see: that in the midst of hardship, we can cry out to God because of his merciful and gracious presence. We're going to do that by, by looking at the need for presence and hardship, the absence of presence and hardship, and then God's provision of presence in our hardship. So as, as we were reading the chapter, did you notice what she kept crying out for? That this woman who had lost everything was really only asking for one thing, and that was for someone to notice her pain. She just wanted someone to note what she was going through and come and comfort her. And we are all like that in hardship. None of us suffer in silence. Now, you might disagree. 
you might be thinking to yourself, Caleb, I know a lot of people that suffer in silence, that, that I, I have no clue what they're experiencing or feeling, whether they're having a good day or a bad day, and, and you know what, I'm one of those people. But you're not. See, no one suffers in silence. We all vocalize our suffering. We just do it in different ways. There are some people that will just straight up tell you, I am having a horrible day. My life is terrible. But there are some that will never tell you that to their face, right? But they'll put it on social media. They'll plaster it on their wall or their story. Or, or, or the people that scream that they're in hardship but never actually use words, right? The ones that when you ask them, nope, I'm fine, and you know something is wrong without them having to use any words. And my point is simply this. We, are all, we all become vocal in our suffering. We all want someone to notice that we're going through hardship. And the reason for that is we need to be validated in our hardship. We need someone to come alongside of us and say, you matter. I know your life is difficult right now, but you are still important and worthwhile. Because let's be honest, when we're in the midst of hardship, we don't feel like that. We feel like we don't matter to anyone, and we just want someone to come alongside us and prove that we're wrong, to validate us and comfort us in our hardship. And this is true of any hardship, but this is especially true of hardships that, that we could describe as groaning hardships. Did you notice how that word kept popping up in our text? The, the groaning, the churning of the stomach, uh, a heart becoming faint. These are all centered around this idea of groaning. Now, when I think of groaning, I think of the noise I make when I try to get out of bed in the morning, or the noise you all would make should I tell a really bad dad joke, right? And yet, when, when the poet is using groaning here, he has a much darker idea. It's, it's that of death pains. Uh, imagine that you're on a, a battlefield right after a bloody encounter. There's bodies littered everywhere, and the sounds that you would hear is groaning. The, the gasp of pain, the sound of life leaving bodies, this is what it means to groan. And hardships have a way of impacting us like that. It feels like life is ebbing out of us. And when we're in those situations, we need someone to be present with us, to notice us and come to our aid. Unfortunately, this rarely happens. The, the people that we look to are often unavailable or, or unable to comfort us in our hardship. We, we see this littered throughout uh, our text. The grieving widow continues to cry out again and again for someone to comfort her, and yet no one does. Now, there, there's two types of people that show up uh, in this text. We could say it way. One group is allies. The other are enemies. And yet neither of these come to, to her aid. Now, an ally would be a friend, a family member, someone who would be on your side and would want to help you in the midst of hardship. And in this passage, they're personified as various people, her children, her young men, her young women, priests, elders, etc. The people that, that should and would be there, but they're not. Notice why in verses 18 and 19. Uh, hear all you peoples and see my suffering. My young men and young women have gone into captivity. My priests and my elders have perished in the city while they sought food to revive their strength. See, they're unable to be present for her because their own hardships take 
precedent. See, in hardships, it becomes an every person for themselves type of situation where we have to look out for numero uno. And maybe you've experienced that before. Uh, maybe you found yourself in the midst of a hardship. You just wanted someone to be present with you, and, and yet they were too busy practicing for their sport or hanging out with their other friends and had no time for you. Or maybe they were with you, but not really with you, right? They were so caught up in, in what they had going on in their life that they couldn't be bothered with the hardship in yours. And out of desperation, the grieving widow turns from her allies, because they're not around, and she cries out to her enemies. But she really doesn't fare much better with them either. Notice, uh, for example, in verse 7, where, her, where it says that her people fell into the hand of, her, of the foe. There was none to help her. Her foes gloated over her. They mocked at her downfall. Throughout the passage, the enemies of Jerusalem do notice her affliction, but they just laugh at her. They rejoice in her downfall. Now, that's really not that surprising, is it, that an enemy would, would not care about your pain? But notice how desperate she is that she is going to someone who she knows would laugh in her face, that desperate for someone to acknowledge her pain. Maybe you've been there before. That, that you just want someone, anyone, to notice what you're going through and care. Is there such a person? Is there someone who is always there? Well, the grieving widow, she turns to God. Three times in our text, in verses 9, 11, and 20, she cries out to the Lord to see her affliction, to see and take note of all that she's going through. It, it's a, a desperate cry for help from the one who's always there. See, we're told in Psalms 139 that, that no matter where we go, whether it's to the highest heaven or, or, or to the grave itself, that God is there, that God is always present, even in hardship. Which sounds like a great thing, but it's really not, because God is just as unavailable as everybody else because of our sin. Notice that the, that theme pops up in our text as well, and that's a problem for us because we're in the same boat. See, Psalm 66:18 tells us that, that if I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Now, cherished iniquity is just a fancy way of saying sin rebelling against God and his decrees. We've all tried to live life as we see fit, and there is no reason that God should ever listen to our cries, let alone respond graciously to them. There's only one person who has ever deserved to have their cries, for, uh, cries to God answered, and that was Jesus. Jesus is the only one who never cherished sin in his heart. He's the only one that should have had God's ear. And yet, as he was hanging on the cross, enduring his greatest hardship, this is what he said. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He cries out to the Lord, and the Lord does not respond. Why? He didn't cherry sin in his heart, and yet he was treated like one who did. Why? so that God could show mercy and grace to us, so that God might respond to our cries the way that Jesus' cries deserved. 
See, Jesus' death in our place not only made the way for God to be gracious and merciful to us, but it's also the guarantee that God will always be merciful and gracious to us no matter what life throws at us. Which means that in the lows of life, God declares to us how valuable we are. That, that we are more, worth more than gold or silver. We are worth the precious blood of his son. And so what does all this have to do for us in the midst of hardship? Well, if you've placed your faith in Jesus, he is present with you in the hardship, supporting you, validating you. But here's the thing. We have to make an effort to hear him. I think James probably says it best in James 4, verse 8. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. We have to cry out to him, to share our hardships with him, because he is merciful and gracious and present with us in the highs and the lows.